Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Hello, good evening everyone. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm architecture program curator here at the Royal Academy. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you to our new lecture theater uh, and also to this evening event uh, organized in partnership with Historic England. It was in February 1912 that Emmeline Pankhurst declared that the argument of the broken pane of glass is the most valuable argument in modern politics. As you know, the right for some women to vote was won in 1918, 100 years ago, in part through militant protests, including a considerable number of attacks on the built environment, both public and private property. The Royal Academy itself was a prominent site of protest. Suffragette uh, Mary Wood attacked John Singer, Singer Sargent, RA's portrait of the author uh, Henry James, on the opening day of the 1914 summer exhibition. Sargent's portrait can be seen in, um, this year in the Great Spectacle exhibition in the fine rooms in Burlington House on the other side of the campus. Uh, this is an exhibition telling the story of 250 years of the summer exhibition, which in fact is opening also tomorrow to the public. Now, as I say, 100 years after the vote was won, we are delighted to partner with Historic England and present this evening's panel discussion on the heritage value of places that have been targeted by protesters. How much did uh, historic value is there inside that have been witnessed political, uh, that have witnessed political and social protests? And should this be recorded, sir, and look after? Tonight's panel uh, will debate this hot topic in light of Historic England's suffrage centenary listings that form part of their Her Stories campaign to enrich the national record of listed sites with women's history, making history her story. So please use the hashtag Her Story if you are posting on Twitter or Instagram tonight. Uh, to introduce tonight's event, we have an exceptional chair, Rachel Cook. Rachel is an award-winning journalist uh, working for The Observer. Um, she's also a television critic of The New uh, Statesman. She's also the author of her brilliant career, Ten Extraordinary Women of the 50s, published in 2013, a group biography that follows 10 women in 1950s Britain, whose pioneering lives paved the way for feminism and laid the foundation of modern women's success. Now, before handing over to Rachel, so she can introduce uh, the structure of the event and also uh, our first speaker, I would like to thank uh, first to Historic England for partnering with us in this exciting event, uh, which is also part of the London Festival of Architecture. Also, thanks to the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and to our lead sponsor, Turkey Ceramics, for making possible the architecture program here at the RA. And now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to our chair tonight, Rachel Cook. Our first speaker tonight is Krista Kaumann. She is Professor of History at the University of Lincoln, where she researches women's political activism in the 20th century. She has published widely on the history of women's suffrage and on women in politics before the First World War. She was the historical advisor for the film Suffragette and serves, and serves on the steering committee of the Women's History Network. Krista, please, take it away. Thanks, Rachel. 
thank you. And um, thank you to Tamsin and everyone at Historic England for getting this event together and indeed getting the project together, without which there would be no event. So I want to start off by saying a little bit about the sorts of sites that we have been looking at as, the, as, the, as part of the relisting project to coincide with the suffrage centenary. And as we've just heard, it's a very fitting location in which to do this because this building was itself a site of suffrage when Mary Wood, real name actually Mary Aldman, attacked Sargent's portrait of Henry, Henry James in May 1914. She was arrested for that and it's worth noting it was her fourth arrest and her fourth imprisonment. Sites that have witnessed social and political protest are very much a recognised part of our landscape. And the history of such protest is often contested. So we have here an image of events at St. Peter's Fields in Manchester in August 1819, when a crowd of some 60,000-plus people, predominantly men but also women, children, families, who had assembled on the site to hear the radical orator Henry Hunt speak to them about suffrage, amongst other things, were violently charged and dispersed by mounted cavalry officers. The site was originally commemorated with the blue plaque on my right, which I guess will be on your left on, of the screen, which noted that 60,000 people had come to hear Henry Hunt and their subsequent dispersal by the military had turned this into a notable site for the history of protest. This plaque, described by the Peterloo Memorial Campaign as a mealy-mouthed piece of commemoration, was finally over, overwritten, overridden by the plaque on the bottom of the screen, the red plaque, which tells the same story in a slightly different way with slightly different words, noting that this was not just a dispersal by the cavalry, but that it was actually a massacre and involved no fewer than 15 deaths and some 600 injuries of participants in the crowd. But there was still more to this particular site, because by the end of the 19th century, the St. Peter's Fields were no longer fields, and what had gone up in St. Peter's Fields, among other things, was Manchester's Free Trade Hall. And the Free Trade Hall became a notable site for regular political meetings. And as you can see from the photograph up here, these meetings were very, very masculine affairs. This shows Churchill addressing a crowd shortly after the First World War, so a slightly more, a slightly differently gendered crowd than you would expect, but still a very, very male affair and a very big and imposing space. And the thing that we remember the Free Trade Hall for most these days and particularly in this centenary year, is that in October 1905, the building became the site of the very first militant act in the women's suffrage campaign. 
Christabel Pankhurst and Annie Kenny, two founding members of the Women's Social and Political Union, decided that they were going to use the general election campaign of the, um, the, the autumn of 1905 to really launch militancy. The WSPU had been going at this point for about two years, and its motto was deeds, not words. But if we're honest about it, there hadn't been too many deeds up to that point that distinguished the union from any of the other political pressure groups operating in northwest England. But when Christabel and Annie went to the hall that night, they took with them that, the banner that they're carrying in the picture there, a homemade banner. The banner, as you will see, says Votes for Women, and they stood up during the meeting and tried to put their question to the platform, will the Liberal government give Votes for Women? They put the question repeatedly, they were told to sit down, they were told to be quiet, and eventually, according to the court report in the Manchester Evening News... They tried to ask a question, they were persuaded to desist, but afterwards they renewed their disturbances and were rejected, and were rejected from the hall. Before they were removed, Miss Pankhurst spat in the face of Superintendent Watson and Inspector Mather and also struck the latter in the mouth. When they were taken to the police court the next morning, they were offered the option of a fine and refused to pay the fine, so were sent to prison. And this was what Deeds Not Words then started to look like. And going to prison became an objective of the suffrage campaign because it got a lot of publicity and it got a lot of attention and it also gave the women a space, a platform in which they could put their message across because this one small event got national press Coverage. It's also worth mentioning that when she wrote her autobiography some 40 years later, at which point she had accepted the accolade of Dame of the British Empire, Christabel said in her autobiography, it was not so much of a spit, but more of a pout. I could never have spat, not even to get the vote. So there we have it. Relayering, representing, and representing. Regendering public space. What we used to refer to as recovery work putting women back in to the spaces where they were. Women's political protest deserves as much public recognition as any other form of political protest. But the buildings that we've looked at also tell a very different story, that of the diversity of suffrage militancy. And it's getting a little bit tiresome for me as a suffrage historian in this centenary year to constantly hear this story that militancy escalated and one type replaced another because that absolutely is not the case of what happened. Suffragette militancy was very much a smorgasbord, different things going on all the time, simultaneously, and you could approach it very much like, almost like a pick and mix. So you could go on a demonstration one day, you could commit an illegal act the next day, and a few weeks later you could be back to going on a demonstration instead. So we have included sites like this, Dorset Hall in Merton near Wimbledon, which was the home of a woman called Rose Lamartine Yates. Yates was a stalwart of Wimbledon WSPU and herself took part in several quite 
daring quasi-illegal acts such as persistently holding public meetings on Wimbledon Common in the face of a prohibition by the local authorities and the police. But the other thing that Rose did a lot of was planning and organising in her role as secretary of the Wimbledon WSPU and also giving up space in her reasonably large and comfortable home so that it became a site where many suffragettes who were either physically damaged by forcible feeding, exhausted by Edwardian prison conditions or just plain worn out by the day-to-day grind of running a political campaign on a shoestring, speaking at meetings from Bristol to Newcastle in the space of three days, could go and rest and recuperate. And although Rose herself had no nursing training, she would always put rooms in her house at the disposal of other suffragettes, and she would have staff on hand to to look after them and to look after them really really well and Dorset Hall was just one of many similar sites across the country that we could look at that are representative of this form of diversity of militancy and the incredible intricacy of the organization of a campaign on this stage on, on this scale One thing that we can't replicate, replicate, sadly, or recapture, because they were secret at the time and we still don't know where they were, is the network of safe houses that existed across the country that enabled women to move around freely when on so-called danger duty or when out of prison on licence. And I'm sure that most of you will remember by now the government passing something that became known as the Cat and Mouse Act in 1913 that was designed to stop suffragette hunger strikers from doing too much damage to themselves. The government was not frightened of torturing women by forcibly feeding them, but they were frightened that they might end up with a martyr on their hands when forcible feeding went wrong, and it increasingly was going wrong. And if any of you saw the very graphic recapturing, uh, um, reinterpreting of forcible feeding in the BBC suffragette programme on Monday night, the nasal intubation was an incredibly dangerous medical practice, and at at least two women we know of ended up with pneumonia because the tube went into their lungs rather than into their stomachs, so not a, a good practice. And the government's way of getting round this was to say, we'll let you out of prison once you go on hunger strike and your weight starts dropping, but the minute you get better, you've got to come back in. And of course what would happen in most cases was that the minute they got better, these women would disappear, and they disappeared through a network of safe houses all over the country and unfortunately we only know about where about two or three of these are so they they didn't fit in with the project but Dorset Hall I think in a way stands for the safe houses as well and while running a safe house doesn't strike us as being militant today you were effectively aiding and abetting a criminal on the run so it did have its own um, it came with its own potential penalties. Other sites are more indicative of what danger duty actually involved. The firing of pillar boxes was one of the key forms of suffrage militancy. It was initiated by Emily Wilding Davison in 1911, and it was always carried out by women working individually, generally spontaneously. They didn't leave many records of them. Very few women were caught for doing this type of activity, but some women were actually caught, so it wasn't completely without risk. And the damage normally involved either 
putting some sort of incendiary device inside or putting some sort of corrosive material inside. This was, about, uh, this was a form of di direct action that was about destruction but also about disruption. There is just about a telephone service in Edwardian Britain, but very few people have access to it. There are certainly no mobile phones. People used to use the post, not the telegram, but the post, as a means of almost daily communication. There were five or six deliveries a day. If you were in town and you were going to be late home, you would send your parents a postcard to say, I've been held up, and the postcard will get home before you. So pillar boxes, striking at the heart of communications, trying to disrupt the daily running of the country in that way was a very important part of what went on. And it's worth reminding ourselves, I think, that these women were not citizens when they're carrying out these, these protests. They were voteless with no hope of political persuasion themselves and no hope of any other form of intervention. And I think that one of the things that the, the relisting can do is put onto the built environment a broader contextualization for militancy through offering longer discursive explanations of a site's importance. The last example that I want to give you in our introduction is a site of a very different form of protest. This is a church in Hunstanton, and it is one of literally hundreds of churches throughout the country that saw part of what the suffragettes referred to as the Prayers for Prisoners protests. Prayers for Prisoners took, part, took place between 1913 and 1914. Personally, I think that this was probably the most difficult form of protest that a suffragette ever took, that a suffragette could ever take part in. You went to church with your friends. Women never did this alone, and I think part of the reason why they didn't do it alone, or they hardly ever did it alone, I think part of the reason why they hardly ever did it alone was because it must have been so terrifying. You went to church with your friends, you sat down, you took part in the service in the same way that everybody did, and then at the part in the liturgy where everybody is supposed to be silent, and there are four or five different points where this can take place, but at a part in the liturgy where everybody is supposed to be silent, the women would then get up and say, God bless Mrs. Pankhurst, God save the women who are being tortured in prison, God save all the suffragette hunger strikers, oh Lord, we pray for your intercession for the suffragette, and offer up prayers for prisoners. It sounds terribly non-controversial, but breaking that silence, speaking at a point when you're not supposed to be speaking, speaking as a woman in the Edwardian church, which was entirely run by men and by men's voices, and doing it visibly. You can't hide from this. Everybody else is kneeling down. You're standing up. And the accounts that we have of women being physically carried out of churches by church wardens, being assaulted on their way out, the irony of the Lady Chapel of Liverpool Cathedral saying we're not going to allow unaccompanied women to our services for a short period of time, and this is the Lady Chapel, is, um, and the irony was not lost on, on local suffragettes. I think, and this is one of the most forgotten forms of protest, but to me it's both one of the most imaginative and also it serves to remind us that militancy continued to take many different forms all through the campaign. So 
just to sum up then briefly, I think the centenary offers us a very good opportunity to enhance public understanding of the scale and scope of the militant suffrage campaign throughout the country. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the relistings project, we've got sites on there from Newcastle down to Bristol and from Bolton down to Brighton. So we've got the whole sort of axis of, of England covered there. There are, of course, spatial and material dimensions to political campaigns. Protests take place in many locations. Even more fluid events, such as demonstrations and processions, like the one we saw yesterday, have physical locations, the spaces that they pass through. And there are also spaces, offices, headquarters, front rooms, where demonstrations and processions are planned. But the additional text dimension of the relistings project allows us to recapture the more complex, discursive aspects of protest. These are important sites as they hold the story of a comparatively recent campaign that a century later, I think we all are starting to find extraordinary that was necessary. And if I can just finish on a, a slightly personal anecdote, like many other women, probably like many other women in the room, I went on the procession yesterday with my daughter. But when we were on the train on the way down, she said, I'm not sure about this. And I said, why? You know, like, what's, what's the problem? And she said, well, we're celebrating suffrage, and I'm not sure that we should celebrate women having suffrage, because women should just have suffrage. Why are we actually celebrating the fact that we've got something that we should just have? You know, why, why is it a big cause? And so I then said, well, you know, because we're celebrating the campaign, and we're celebrating the success of the campaign, and we're looking at other things. But I thought that was a very interesting point, and it does remind us that, you know, it's in our grandmother's lifetimes, but it was necessary and it was not that long ago. Thanks. Thank you very much Krista. Um, our second speaker is Emily G. She was appointed a Historic England's London Planning Director in October 2016. Before this she was for several years the Head of Listing Advice at Historic England. Emily also heads Historic England's 20th Century Network. She's published on Victorian and Edwardian housing for working women and on listing, including post-war buildings and issues of diversity. Emily. Thank you, Rachel, very much, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. Historic England's role as the government's advisor on heritage is to help tell the national story through protection and celebration of the historic environment. And to mark the centenary of the 1918 Act, um, we've been focused on recording suffrage history on the list, working with um, the brilliant work that Chris has done, of course, at the University of London. Now, the National Heritage List for England is a publicly, public resource. It's a searchable tool. It's a register of significance in the historic environment. And it's important to us that it tells our broad and deep national story. This is why we undertake projects like this one, documenting on the statutory list the suffragettes' widespread and systematic campaigns and acts of sabotage, acknowledging that they used the power of place and property to get their message out in as visible a way as possible. So, list of buildings like these, this 1860s Penfold letterbox on the right in Highbury Grove, which we've already seen, um, was relisted to mention this. It was found on fire in 1913, having been set alight um, in the night before. Also relisted was the general post office in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which you see there on the left, 
where the windows were smashed during a day of disturbances in 1909. Our work around suffragettes focuses on how they used the built environment to protest women's lack of rights by burning train stations and tea houses, destroying shop windows and paintings, and cutting telegraph wires. The fight for suffrage can be traced through our city streets and buildings, but there are few tangible markers left, and the list is one way that we can capture this important story in the historic record. And speaking of the power of place, of course, we are here discussing just this in the Royal Academy, listed a grade two star in 1970, so it's long been recognised for its more than special interest. But as of Friday, thanks to Krista and, and listening colleagues, some of who are here tonight, um, the text now includes the story of, it, of, of its focus of a number of protests by the suffragettes. And we've heard already what they were this evening, so I won't repeat that. Um, but it was interesting that, of course, as a result of a number of these um, attacks, that the buildings, the public galleries were closed for a while. And it was after they reopened that the women's, the way that they entered the building was controlled. They weren't allowed to bring bags and umbrellas, for example. Um, the approach of this relisting project is not new for us. In 2007, we relisted or listed newly 50 or so buildings to commemorate the 1807 Abolition Act. Among these were the monument to Joanna Vassa, um, daughter of Aluado Equiano, the great... Um, um, writer for, ab for abolition and former slave, and you see here it on the right, um, recently restored in Abney Park Cemetery. And we did a batch of amendments to bring more, to more properly reflect new research that was being done in a number of institutions around the country. Um, and one example of that you see here on the left, this is a mid-Victorian um, mill-owning family's house, where the woman of the house was a former mill worker. Um, and we drew attention through the relisting to this extraordinary series of tympanum sculpture, which illustrate the brutality of slavery in the New World, set against a, what was um, set out as a very reforming cotton production in the mills of Yorkshire, graphically depicted here in, in the main hall. And this kind of relisting and new listing work demonstrates that a presence in the statutory record is an important way of bearing witness to a much broader range of history than it's previously been acknowledged in that place. And in 2013, the listing for Mary Wollstonecraft's monument in St Pancras Old Churchyard was amended to improve on the text from its original listing from 1974, which rather gallingly read, Tomb of William Godwin and His Two Wives, um, we revised the entry to illuminate the significance of Godwin and Wollstonecraft. Um, and famously, this monument is believed to be not a site of sabotage, um, but a site of tryst between their daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, and Percy Shelley. And these days, of course, it's also a site of pilgrimage, with frequently left floral tributes on her birthday and her death day, and any feminist moments in the calendar in between. And Stewie, of course, recognised that rather lovely placed postcard there. Um, these acts speak to the way that we immortalize historic figures in the public realm and how we bring meaning to places and monuments that connect us with them, with the past, and with important events in our national story. Now, none of the buildings where Wollstonecraft lived survive, and many in the room will be familiar with the campaign to erect a monument to her in Stoke Newington. Um, and across the canal from this, where her monument is, is a new street in King's Cross, a brand new road that was named Wollstonecraft Street, demonstrating the importance of capturing women's names in our public places in many ways. So back to the project for a moment. Our initial focus was on sites of sabotage, although little is evident in building fabric today. St. Stephen's Hall, seen here, is a notable exception, where the spur of Lord Faulkner's boot was snapped off when a chained suffragette was forcibly removed. Damage made by campaigners was generally fixed and cleaned up very quickly on purpose. It was in the interest of authorities to remove evidence of attacks. 
Most of the buildings and sites the suffragettes chose were intentionally prominent ones and thus have already been listed for a long time for other reasons. Um, but we've relisted some of these really prominent ones, like the Houses of Parliament, um, to demonstrate that nothing was off limits to the militant campaign. As Krista has said, non-violent protest continues, so we've also included theatres and public buildings where interruptions would be made, and there's really powerful prowls for prisoners as well, sites where that took place, as well as houses, as we've already heard, and places of, of law, Bow Street courts and prisons, because, of course, the issue of inhumane treatment in prison was such an important aspect of the campaign. So with each of these 41 amendments, we've also added a phrase at the bottom saying, this list entry was amended in 2018 as part of the centenary commemorations. And so this act of relisting becomes a commemoration in its own right. So are we condoning violent acts and willful damage of listed buildings by recording and commemorating this history? Aren't we at Historic England meant to be about protecting precious buildings? <clears throat> Don't we argue that consent should always be carefully sought and that willful damage to the historic environment is illegal? Yes, of course we do now, but we are in the business of history and we need to consider historic context. We believe strongly that our role as a public body is to recognise and tell the broad and diverse aspects of our nation's story and that some of this will inevitably be difficult history. We also need to remember, as Krista set out, that before the First World War, women were not recognised as full participatory citizens, so they could not change the law through the ballot box. This is not to downplay the gravity of the illegal forms of militancy, such as arson and incendiary bombs, but we also need to mention, remember that this was intended as symbolic violence against property and not directed at people. The suffragettes took great care to ensure that nobody was physically harmed, targeting empty buildings, often at night. And as we've already heard, it's important to note that this form of protest was only part of a whole range of militant practices. And I think we can consider these brave acts without necessarily condoning violence to property. We can admire the courageousness of the dangerous fight for equal voting rights. And we can commemorate that bravery that we benefit from today without necessarily celebrating violence and destruction. It's also our duty to keep public historic record up to date. So there are other ways that willful damage to buildings takes on an extraordinary significance and will, become, will form part of the history of a building. In the case of war damage, this was sometimes left as a testament to strength and perseverance and a reminder of risk. The highly listed V&A Museum has kept its blitz-damaged stones as, and you can read the lovely plaque there, a memorial to the enduring values of this great museum in a time of conflict. And the former labour exchange in Bath, bottom left there, was listed solely on account of its pockmarked facade, a result of shrapnel damage from the high explosive bombs dropped during the Baedeker raids in 1942. And contested history is something um, very relevant to discussions of heritage and conservation today. For example, in Bristol, a debate is carrying out over the numerous statues and buildings honouring the 18th century slave trader and philanthropist Edward Colston. Um, he was deputy governor of the Royal African Company, which transported around 100,000 slaves. The statue to him, which you see on the left here, is listed, and any works that affect its significance would require listed building consent. There have been some covert actions to recontextualise, one which you can see here, the statue, and the countering Colston campaign has other plans to contextualise the plaque, which I haven't shown, but it describes him as one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. 
So the main tests for such works to a listed building are to understand if they constitute harm to the significance of the asset and then to consider if this is outweighed by public benefit. Each is considered on a case-by-case basis. And we, as an organisation, recently consulted on and published guidance on how to deal with contested heritage. As an organisation, we generally favour recontextualisation through an additional response interpretation or a new artwork, for example. And it's unlikely, highly unlikely, that we would sanction the removal of a statue or a window. We would always urge a thorough investigation to understand the historic context in which certain commemorations were originally made. Um, And I include here an artwork by Fleerflip, right? By by Fleerflip in Bristol. Yeah. He's a Sheffield artist. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a, a, really, you know, a really interesting um, artwork on a building in, in Bristol which very graphically depicts the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade as a counterpoint to some of the other commemoration in the city. And renaming of buildings, of course, is another, another very powerful way um, of, of redressing and recontextualizing buildings. Um, so I just want to talk very briefly about our, our 100 Places campaign, the next category of which is power, protest, and progress. Um, so some of the themes from this evening will loom large, I'm sure, when the, the expert judge, David Olashoga's choices are announced at the top 10 in this category um, this summer. Much nominated, of course, was the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which we've already seen, which um, stands on the site of the 1819 Peterloo Massacre. Um, and course, the grade two star listing of this building has been upgraded as part of the project. Many of the 100 Places nominations had a protest theme, as you might expect. Another favourite was the plaque shown here on the left commemorating the Bristol bus boycott. In response to the poor treatment of black people in Bristol after the Second World War, individuals formed a group and fought to denounce the the open secret that no non-white bus driver or conductor had ever been employed by the Bristol Omnibus Company, and they urged a boycott of the service. This drew parallels with US segregation and Martin Luther King's non-violent crusade and encourages as much disruption as possible. Eventually, this was successful, and managers announced that there would be a complete integration on the buses without regard to race, colour, or creed. This was a watershed moment and led to the UK's first laws against race-based discrimination in 1965. Um, And this modest plaque is all that survives to tell this story that's barely known outside of Bristol, but has undeniable significance as a moment of protest and progress. And in 2010, we listed the markets at Brixton, which you see on the right here, at the heart of the black British community um, since the the Empire Windrush docked in the Caribbean in 1948. And the flourishing new community had the confidence to to take on the the produce and the the space of these markets. And they were listed as the most architectural manifestation of this really important wave of post-war immigration that had such an important impact on the social and cultural landscape of post-war Britain. I mentioned sites of pilgrimage earlier, and that is what this recently unveiled statue to suffragist, suffragist Millicent Fawcett has become. I show you here the unveiling on the left, the suffrage bike ride that took place, and of course on processions yesterday many people went and gathered there um, afterwards. Historic England advised, we were consulted and we advised that we would warmly welcome this first statue of a woman in Parliament Square, which we thought would make its own historical and artistic contribution to this significant commemorative landscape. We also argued that it was crucial to match the context of the statues that were already there, figurative and bronze on stone plinths. 
there is absolutely a place for creative, innovative responses to capturing more women and people of colour in our commemorative landscapes. But I think the tradition of statue commemoration is an important one, and it addresses the need for equivalency in certain public spaces like this one. So recasting the public record to draw our narratives of women's history through projects like the one we're discussing this evening and encouraging important and high-quality new commemorations are two ways that we can continually bring balance and greater equality to the public landscape, as well as to our shared understanding of its significance. And if that means equally honouring and understanding both suffragists and suffragettes, suffragettes and their acts of sabotage, then it is absolutely our role to do so. Thank you. Now, um, last but definitely not least, we have um, Stewie. Stewie is a Bristol-based artist whose work can be seen in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Hastings and Margate. His street art is an expanding library of life-size stencils of carefully placed British icons. Uh, those of you who know the Unitarian Chapel in Newington Green in North London... Uh, will probably have seen his fantastic depiction of Mary Wollstonecroft on one of its walls. Um, Mary worshipped in that chapel. And the stencil, I think, is vividly alive and ghostly at the same time, which is quite a thing. He's also working on a series of images that represents an A to Z of indigenous British animals. Stewie. Thank you, the Royal Academy and Historic England, for inviting me. As you said, I'm a, a street artist, so normally my work appears outside buildings like this. Uh, so it's a nice opportunity to see my work on screen inside this brilliant building. Um, I, and also, it's good to see Bristol represented. Um, I lived in Stoke Newington for many years. That's why Mary Wollstonecraft is on the Unitarian Chapel. It's a building I walked past for many years and um, there's some, there seems to be a, a, a lovely comparison between Bristol and, and Hackney uh, as two separate places uh, but what I'll do now, I'll show a film that was made, was a glorified interview that was made uh, for the People's History Museum of Democracy in, in Manchester um, and rather than me waffle on for ages, it's, it's a good visual cross-section of what I do it doesn't just deal with suffrage, but other, other people as well. So it's about 10 minutes long. So Today, Mary Wollstonecraft is fated as Britain's first feminist. She's so hip that her portrait has been turned into graffiti here in Newington Green in North London, the place where she lived in the 1780s. Mary Wollstonecraft's radical chic was based on a book she wrote in 1792 when she was 33 called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. The book's title echoed that of Tom Paine's best-selling manifesto, The Rights of Man. But whereas Paine argued for the natural equality of man with man, Wollstonecraft argued for the equality of men and women. <laughs> Fighting the cry, eyes fighting the tears. I'm to the teeth through all the words reaching all the years. I bounced across a poppy field. I saw the 
her clean as she raised your shield Love screamed down with the sun Behind its back Our fathers were all soldiers Should we be soldiers too? Fighting and falling like soldiers started doing street art in about 2007. The early work that I used to do was, was pretty much all, all hand cut, um, but in recent years I've, I've, my work's been laser cut. It doesn't really matter what the process is. Um, it's to do with who it is and where it is and why it's there. I was living in London at the time, then I moved on to Br uh, Brighton. Um, but the, the main guy I was really inspired by, apart from the obvious one, was a, a guy called Blec Lerat, a French uh, artist who, who was uh, pre-Banksy. Pre uh, and he went around Paris spraying black, and, black images, black and white images. I come up with the idea independently. No one tells me to create these images. So you design them, you cut them, then you spray them. When I designed the image with... Um, and sort of Roberta oversaw it. Um, it still took a, it took about a week to cut and, and two minutes to spray, I think. So um, that's the beauty of using stencils as a medium to create street art. It's really important for me to place the image in the right location. So I call it psychodrography. Um, but with, with, with Mary Wollstonecraft, um, I lived not far from a, a, a chapel called the Unitarian Chapel in Unton Green. So for years I used to walk past the chapel with the blue plaque on it. Um, and I contacted this woman called Roberta Wedge who, in Stoke Newington who, who knew a lot about Mary and helped me um, come up with the... Well, I, desi I designed the image of Mary uh, referencing dress from the 1780s um, but I just made sure through Roberta that I ch was choosing the right dress and the hairstyle was, 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 was correct so she was really helpful in, in defining the, the icon iconic image that I've used of, 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 used of Mary on, on the chapel so including even her height, a particular association with that building and set up I think the first school for girls in the 1780s when she was probably in her 20s. And um, so the fact that even though the church chapel had been altered over the years, she would have had, she would have been in that building, walked past that building, possibly even where the stencil is of her now, she may have walked past the same spot all those, all those years ago. So it creates, it creates an emotion, um, a sort of, um, an, I don't know, sort of reflection, nostalgia, Someone, someone told me years ago, it's almost like having the ability to stop time, which I found quite poignant. People, even over the years, have put flowers at the base of the, the stencil, um, perhaps on National, International Women's Day, the day of her birth or her death. Uh, and it's great to have that interaction within, from the community. And the choosing of the image, I did get acceptance from the community to to uh, place the image of, of Mary on the location, even though it is a listed building. So I try uh, and get uh, permission wherever I do, the, uh, do my stencils. Um, and a lot of people might have seen my work in Manchester and all the work you've seen I would have got permission for over the years. The interesting thing about choosing Mary is that most of my 
most of the character I've, characters I've chosen are relatively contemporary characters. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting to choose Mary because she was from, um, from that period, from the, the 17, late 1700s. So it's, I quite like the juxtaposition of putting up a stencil, a contemporary modern stencil of an historical figure. So very much ghost-like, because uh, I think Black uses a quote of saying, saying, in reference to his work, it's like seeing ghosts across the street. And in this case, it almost is, is, is a ghost. But, but I th- the great thing about the use of graffiti is a useful tool, because I, I teach in schools from time to time. And um, it's amazing how people can get engaged about subjects and history and art and geography, whatever, through the use, through street art. And I think it's great having a, a powerful, strong female figure um, in that in the urban environment in central London, in Newington Green, and so educate it. But if people started to dig and did a bit more research uh, through that medium of graffiti, they, they could find, a, find more about Mary. In Manchester, you've got a, 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 most of them are 20th century characters. So, um, yeah, I think, I think Mary is, is the only one outside of that, that century. Um, but I think it's quite a powerful image creating yeah, street art, an image of a person in, in a dress from a different time um, rather than, um, like with Frank on Oldham Street in a, in a suit, you know. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't... And, and it's not all serious, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's talking about Mary, but Frank's side of Autumn's a comedian, you've got John Cooper Clark, a poet, you've got... Tony Wilson, entrepreneur, and Quentin Crisp. But they're all iconic figures who are probably, even if we don't know them initially, and I'm sure a lot of people have walked past Mary and not known who she is. I think a lot of these images, they might, you might not know who they are, but they might be in your subconscious, or, or you might have referenced them through popular media of, at the time. Um, and it's just bringing them back to life again and remembering who these people were, what they did. And um, Mary did some absolutely amazing things for women, uh, you know, and, and I think she should be remembered. Thomas Paine wrote a, wrote a book, the, the Rights of Man, which is a very popular book of, of its time. Mary Wollstonecraft was the, the, the vindication of, of, of women and um, was about equality for men and women. I suppose she was, in a way, like, like Arthur Rimbaud in, in Paris, who lived in Camden as well. It's, um, punk, punks of their time, they were revolutionaries. At school, I was interested in art, history, and geography, and it, it, and it, it combines all, all three. With my work, it's not about me, it's about the individual, because it's photorealistic almost. Um, it's about the pe- person, the man or woman in, in the in the picture uh, and also the way the way street art works is that um, it, it, it's, it's, it's again which is a threat to the establishment I suppose it's, it, it's a accessibility to all 
it's almost like a socialist type thing, isn't it? I suppose where it's a it's an open gallery, street gallery, um, and you can love it, hate it, it get get painted over, it can stay. Um, <clears throat> you know it gets painted over by artists regularly it changes it's meant to change it's not meant to stay so it's it's like when you go around um parts of the northern quarter regularly like stevenson square um every so months a new image pops up and i think that's a healthy thing it's not meant to be permanent and that keeps things fresh and alive the image of mary is on the unitarian chapel in newton green as a thank you, I suppose, what I, what I decided to do is to make um, two editions of 25 prints, uh, one on a white background and one on a red background. So I gave all of the 25 prints to the Unitarian Chapel for the upkeep and maintenance of the Unitarian Chapel. But I also gave 25 prints on white to Mary on the Green, and this is a really important group uh, to set to help raise money to build, to construct, design a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft in Newton Green as a memorial to her and, and what she represents. And so, in a way, the, the stencil that I did is, is like a, a, a poor man's temporary, or hopefully permanent, but reminder. Uh, of, of Mary uh, until they raise enough money to build the actual statue. Now, perhaps you can return. A few slides right at the end. So this is Roberta, Lisa Gormley and Roberta Wedge. They were the key people in well, advising me on, on what, or making me aware of Mary on the Green campaign the need for the statue to immortalise Mary there. Um, and this is outside the building, which was put, the stencil was put up in about 2013, I think. Um, and it loosely touches on what, what, what Emily said as well about this, the importance of place, sort of spirit and place. Not, not in a religious context, but just sort of in a, in a place of reflection, I suppose. Um, and... There it is from the from a wide, wide angle. So the statue will should be over here, hopefully, in a, in, you know, when they raise enough money to build it. Um, and we mentioned as well about um, um, memory in place. This is a cable. This is a memorial by Ray Walker, um, immortalising the Cable Street riots which was, um, there was a, a rights against the fascism and uh, Oswald Mosley and the black shirts. And my, my mother-in-law knew the artist who, who, who also, he's done several around Hackney and, and London, um, but he died in about 1987. Um, but it's been maintained regularly as the, uh, one of the plaques on the side of the building. And... Talk about listing buildings and, and, and remembering buildings, and you know, should you leave them, should you maintain them? In Beirut, uh, there's a building called the, uh, the is it the Karak building or house? I forget, but it's in Beirut, and basically they've um, this is what it was like during the civil war. I know it's a departure from suffrage, but it's just how how you can treat a building, and with this. Um, 
it's, it's a museum now, I think, and you, you, and you can see where the snipers used to use the building. And so they've left, like, like with the, um, the marks of the, the, the bomb marks in London you get on buildings, they've left, they've left the, the, the shell marks on the walls. And to leave with, uh, this is a photo from yesterday from the march. So I, I helped design a banner. Uh, <laughs> for that which was uh, I'm sure we've all seen it on the on, on Facebook and on the BBC News um, and again doing, doing the street art you know quietly at night going out and doing these things there's a, there's a longevity to it Think there is a positive side to street art and, and I didn't know it, this was going to happen you know I didn't know it would have life beyond that night and, and now you know this is hopefully one of many things that can happen through the use of street art. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Emily, can we just clarify, is the main way that this information is um, available to people by, you know, on the internet? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you have any plans to make it available in any other way? I mean, you know, we all know about blue plaques, but... The reason I'm asking this question is, if we all accept that, in principle, it's fantastic to have these stories and to put women back in the picture, if the information isn't immediately available, what kind of substantive difference can it make to the public's perception of a place? That's Mm -hmm. what I'm interested in, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's important that this is on the record, but can it actually affect people if they can't see it when they immediately visit a building? Mm Well, I think the, the improvements that have been made to the list, it used to be that you had to go and sort of knock on the council office door yes. and they'd hand you the book, but now it is this publicly searchable thing, which does make it an extraordinary resource and tool for anyone. So you can, you can all go home tonight and look up the list and search for your own address or the name of an architect or your famous feminist hero and see if she's included on the list in any way. But what's um, quite interesting is you can also add your own information. So it's something I encourage you all to do. And we should think about what we do with, with Mary in Stoke Newington and actually adding a photograph to that, of that to the list entry. So there is a crowdsourced element to the statutory list. But no, it doesn't immediately put it into the public domain in a tangible way, like, like art does or like a book would do. But it is very much there as a public resource. Buildings are privately owned often on the list, but the list is part of the public record, and so it's there to be used, to be explored, to be researched and celebrated. Um, Christy, you used the, I think you used the term gendered environment when you were speaking. Can we just um, talk about that a little bit? I mean, when people talk about a gendered environment, what do they mean? And how does your project work to uh, ameliorate yeah. that? <laughs> I, I think, well... Copart answer to say all environments are gendered. <laughs> I th- when, when people have been using the term in the centenary year, I think what they are generally referring to is environments that were gendered in a heavily masculine way. Um, so, you know, to bring it back to suffrage again, for example, one of the regular things that the WSPU did was hold meetings in London that they referred to as the Women's Parliament. Mm-hmm. And they, by calling it the Women's Parliament, they drew attention to the fact that Parliament, which was only ever referred to as Parliament, of course, that there is a gendering to that. There's mm-hmm. an, an implicit gendering in it. Um, and I think that, you know, it's one of the things that we've seen over the past century in the way that 
build, buildings like Parliament have changed their, their gendering. When Nancy Astor was elected, they famously had to stick in a lavatory for yes. <laughs> three minutes' notice. And then, you know, 25 years later, you have women MPs saying, there's still only three bathrooms and there's 27 of us now. And yeah. we have, so this, that sort of, and, and it, then it was years and years and years after women were first elected that they were allowed into the smoking rooms and the dining rooms and things. So it is the, the, the fact that certain environments mm. are only for... You still get a events. hook to hang your sword on, even if you're a woman, mm. in, when, you, mm. when you become an MP. Mm. In terms of how you break down that gendering historically, I think it's partly to say, well, how have these spaces been like this in an exclusionary way, or actually have there been more women there than than we've realised. Um, there's a really interesting project going on at the moment with History of Parliament on just women who were in Parliament when they weren't supposed to be, because of course the Parliament has a lot of live-in staff. So, you know, there are men who work on the parliamentary estate, their wives live there, their daughters live there, the cleaners were still women even though the building was male. So it's that kind of just recognising that um, there are very few physical spaces that have been entirely masculine or entirely mm. feminine, but we've thought of them as being. Mm. Now, shall we talk just a little bit about statues? Um, because, Emily, you mentioned how, you know, um, Historic England was all in favour of the statue of Millicent Fawcett, and I think most people were. But there is another point of view, isn't there, about statues? <laughs> this is because we said it before, and we said it's really good if we get a bit really, yeah, and I think it, I, I mean, I think it is very interesting. I mean, I live right by um, Newington Green, and um, they've just had the competition for the designer of the statue, and I think Mag Maggie Hambling has been awarded it, and I think her plan is to do a, almost like a non-statue statue. It's certainly not going to be this... The, the man, who his design was very, very solid and chunky, and hers is a little bit different. But anyway, just before we get into that, do, well, I mean, what do you feel about statues? Do you feel I, that they're just... Um, that they are very masculine? I think I, I do just have a personal issue with the statue as, as a form for, for precisely that reason. I mean, my... My favourite bit of big-scale commemorative art, I think, is the, um, the one to the women of the Second World War, because mm. it's not figurative. There, mm. isn't, there isn't a person on it. It's this sort of empty, empty clothes and, and empty spaces. Mm. I, I, the thing that I didn't like about the Millicent Fawcett statue, although I, I love the fact that it's there, and I think it's amazing that it's there, and I think when, when Caroline spoke at the unveiling and she said, you know, I was jogging with my dog, and I suddenly thought they were all men, so I jogged around twice, and <laughs> they were still all men, and that's it. Um, and absolutely, and, and you can't argue with that, but I just, there's just something in me that thinks that it's one woman in this very male space and for, for precisely the reasons that you said it's necessary mm. to keep that same form so I think maybe you know if we can think about different but there are obviously alternatives exactly alternatives to yeah. statues well, well, the, well, I think the other artist who was put forward was, was it Jenning I'm not I'm Jennings, yes Martin Martin so Jennings he, very different in style so Jennings so he, if you go to St Pancras Station you'll see a statue of John Betjeman I've also done stents of John Betjeman, weirdly, mm. but he chooses, makes them realistic, slightly oversized, where Hambling, and I, I love Hambling, um, and I, the, the stencil, the, the stencil, the statue of, of the strand of um, Oscar Wilde, it's still controversial, mm. but she takes, she p 
it's a little twist on things, you know, and I quite like that. And the fact that she's a woman as well. Mm. So I, I, I'm in favour of, of, of that, mm. you know, because it's not literal, even though I do literal, mm. it, she doesn't. Um, mm. But the, again, the beauty of the stencils is that, you know, if, if, if you come up with a name of somebody, well, first of all, I choose who I do, so there's no external influence, no one's paying me to do this. There's no big business or religion telling me, you know. Um, so if someone suggests something, I could pick up on it and I could do it tomorrow. So there's no, I don't have to go through, you know, through the system and, and um, it doesn't have to be evaluated. No. But obviously I would get permission, hopefully. It, what, what kind of reactions, I mean, I don't know how you know how people feel about the work that you do, but what, I mean, is it mostly positive? Do people... I've never heard anything negative. Um, I even, you know, it, it's public, but I, 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 I know we're talking about Mary and suffrage, but I did a stencil um, near me and I actually got arrested for doing it because I didn't get permission because I was lazy. But I knew the guy who, who, whose house it was. And he loved it the day after, but the police didn't know that the night before. <laughs> so Whoops. 12 hours in Shoreditch Police Station, Old Street Police Station. Yeah, it's not the most pleasant experience. But the stencil was of Malcolm McLaren, the Sex Pistols manager. Love him or hate him. But he, he was born on that road, so the stencil mm. was to commemorate his death two years after he died. And it, he lived at more, number 47 Carrisfort Road was born there. So. It is possible, I suppose, with the stencil of Mary, for instance, yeah. that it would, uh, that someone would walk past it and eventually become very curious, not be quite sure who it was, and eventually might look inside. Well, well I, I had a, it's actually fantastic inside because her pew's there, I think mm. it's number 19, uh, the, the pew in, in, the, in the chapel, um, and you can sit in it. And, 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 I, and I was in Stoke Newton the other week and I just, went in there during the Stoke Newton Literary Festival and mm. just got quiet. I didn't say, so yeah, I did the stencil outside, you know. I just, just again, it's non-religious, it's a moment of reflection mm. and calm. Mm. Meditation, almost, mm. but self-meditation. Mm. Self but, um, yeah, it's, I've never had anything negative and, and I did get permission from the community to do it. And, and it's important. I don't go into a random place and just do it. I do my research. Um, you know, I'm not going to do one of Oswald Mosley down, no. you know, um, thank God, you know, no. but um, yeah, who's next? I don't know, I don't know. Now, Emily, you touched, when you were speaking, you touched briefly on um, the issue of the fact that we are commemorating acts of violence often in this, in this particular round of listing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there are any precedents for this in Britain or elsewhere in the world, but mm. was it, how controversial was it in historic England when you began to think about this? I mean, were people nervous about it? Did they think, well, if we're going to celebrate the suffragettes, we should also celebrate the suffragists? I mean, how much were you interested in the balance mm. of it? Um, and I think that the lovely thing about this year and all different events, including ours, but other organisations as well, is, is how inclusive they have been. And I think we've, we've just as the women of the time, didn't necessarily draw a very particularly clear distinction mm. throughout their life in, in which activity they, or the way they wanted to 
fight for the right to vote. I think that's something that we've picked up on as well. So like yesterday, for example, Processions was extraordinarily inclusive. Obviously, the installation itself was the colours of WSPU, but it was very much you know, thinking about kind of women's rights and suffrage in, in the round. So I think as an organisation, I think we're really comfortable with looking at this, particularly because there are, there are ways that um, we were talking about built fabric and our business, of course, is, is architecture and fabric and, um, and history and where they, where they um, combine. And so the act of sabotage was something that was very specific to, to fabric, but um, obviously we, we commemorate any activity of, of special historic we, interest in different Chris, ways. Chris, you said that, because obviously you were the person that came up with the list, and were mm. you, you said when you were speaking that you are already rather fed up with the slightly uh, monomaniacal approach mm. that we have. We, I mean, there is a certain point at which people think that it is just throwing stones yeah. and setting fires to things and that there is a, there's a da there is a danger associated with that isn't there I, th I think there is and I think you know it's also the other question that people always say is you know is is this terrorism is this terrorism well yes it is terrorism but terrorism in 1910 means something different from what terrorism means today and actually um you know, even um, etymologically, you can you can track you can track it's the change in meaning mm. through the dictionary from when it stops to be violence for political means to be violence for political means, in, including targeted against civilians. So mm. there's a, there is a sort of real shift. It can be problematic, but I think that's one of the things that that we're trying to do with this project is to show this diversity. So it's not just. Um, you know, it's not just 41 buildings that had their windows broken or 41 buildings that were burnt down. Mm. It's 41 buildings where sometimes very different things happened. Mm. I, the, the only thing that was a shame was that we couldn't get a suffrage shop because we couldn't find a shop that was... We couldn't find a shop that was already listed and we couldn't find a shop that still existed that merited listing mm. for any of the other reasons for meriting listings because mm. that was, I think, a very public dimension of the campaign that mm. we missed out, these shops that they had in every city where they'd sell... Sell jewellery and Jewellery and badges and um, suffragette jam, believe yes, it or not, yes. and, uh, yeah, <laughs> to keep the campaign in the public yeah. eye. Was there anything that you... I know when we spoke earlier, you said originally... When you first came up with your long, long, long list, yeah. you had, you know, a thousand places on yeah. it. What was the thing you were most sad not to be able to relist? Um, I mean, I think it, what, it, what I just said, really, I think it was not being able to was find a shop, because mm -hmm. I think that just, you know, that just gives that other dimension, which I think is, is the dimension that's missing yeah. from what we put together, because yeah. it just wouldn't, it, it just didn't fit in. The ephemeral nature of those, yeah. you know, the sort of the yeah. pop-up shop of yeah. Has this Emily given um, you ideas for other similar projects? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Speak to colleagues. I think it's something that um, we, as an organisation, are very alive to anniversaries and thinking about different movements so it has been I mentioned the abolition work that we did mm. looking at slavery and abolition in the historic environment so I think the idea that we hook on to sort of a critical mass of, of thought because we, we don't do all the work ourselves in-house of course you know, we, we need to draw on other research that's happening in the sector so it's a really nice kind of partnership way of, of bringing bringing more information into the into the public mm. domain so Yes, we're always open for, for new events. This fits very neatly with our kind of immortalised season that's happening this year, thinking about how, through the planning system, we can also encourage new commemorations, and that's something as part of our advisory role that we do have a role in. So I think it's important that we have a, an opportunity to give a view on, on quality public realm stuff in the future. No, separate to buildings, I have to mention these names as well, because there was a split, talking about violence within, in demonstration. Mm. Um, 
I, I, did, I did some images years ago um, for the WILPF, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, um, on, on request of a friend of mine who's part of that organisation. So I did some other work, who, and they split. I think Pankhurst forced um, one of them out. I think it was, was it Emmeline Lawrence, Emmeline Lawrence who, who they sort of had a bit of falling out the because they she didn't freedom, but she, she didn't was want to. Because I think I think I think Pankhurst wanted that's more action, and and and, and was it Lawrence who didn't want to be more, as physical. I don't know. And I don't know. You, they, yes, that's well, cool. nobody. Really, they had. They had a really big falling okay. out, and nobody. And I mean, Christabel had lived with the Christabel Pankhurst had lived with them for two right. years. So okay. some, some people think it was actually maternal jealousy yeah. that she won. Anyway, they 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 did split off. The Pethick Lawrences kept votes for women newspapers, so they okay. kept on reporting on militancy and encouraging it in that way. But they were less comfortable with arson. That was the yeah. But because but the thing is, is as well is that. One of my jobs is to keep the memory of these people mm. alive. So, just I'm sure everyone, everyone here probably knows of them, but there's Catherine Marshall, who was shown earlier uh, as a banner, Kathleen Courtney, Crystal Macmillan, and Emmeline Lawrence. So, um, I'm not just a Mary, I've done yeah. other women as well, and, mm. and I'm trying to do more and more women. Are you? Yes, mm. yeah. And, and um, well, like, you know, I have two daughters, and it's, you know, I just. It's, it's just such an imbalance in, in, in work and in pay and in, in, in lots of levels. That I was because I'm freelance. I'm I'm, I'm out of that world. Mm. I didn't know. It was, well, one it was, good thing about yeah. this anniversary has been that there've been a number of books. Um, Diane Atkinson's book, yeah. for instance, and which are just full of names. And it is useful, I think, not to always just be talking about the Pankhurst. Yeah. There were ordinary acts of bravery mm. and ordinary acts of resistance, non-celebrity. Uh, suffragettes and I think it's really important to remember those people and also mm. the suffragettes who weren't involved in acts of violence who simply marched and uh, and um, met and I think it's you know the more I mean, names we know that, the better. But that's really interesting because of course the, the next big thing is the commemoration of the suffragette pilgrimage yes, that, yes, that's, yes. that's coming up in July. But, the, it, but the really fascinating thing about that is that of course the pilgrimage had it taken place 10 years ago, would have been counted as militancy because mm -hmm. the stuff that the WSPU were doing at the beginning mm -hmm. was this, it was militancy because it was women doing things in spaces mm -hmm. when women weren't supposed mm -hmm. to do things in spaces. Yeah, so the so we, even, yeah, so even the, um, and the, the NUWSS really changes its tactics mm -hmm. in response to the WSPU mm -hmm. and they start doing much more by way of public meetings mm -hmm. and street campaignings and then end up doing the pilgrimage, mm -hmm. which they would have found shocking. Yeah, but yeah no, absolutely. Earlier. Have anyone a question? Uh, excuse me, I don't have a question, but if you don't mind, I'd like to make a quick comment or two. First of all, I want to thank the RA for putting on this event, only because it's looking at issues like arson and stuff within this August system, and rather the House of Parliament is promoting not the 100th anniversary, but the 90th anniversary of the representation of the People's Act of 1928. You'd have thought they would be doing something like this. Anyway, as you can see in this room, I'm the only African here. Emily was talking about maybe looking at open spaces and putting people of color. Some people think people of color is racist because white is also a color. But if it wasn't for so English heritage, is that our organization? I won't be here because we did a London History Day, which you are, uh, you. You people run, uh, this is the second year, 
and I looked at open spaces in African representation land, and that's why I'm here. Right. Uh, I have learned from the professor, I caught the last bit of your, 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 your presentation, but the idea that people were demonstrating in church is something I'm going to take because Parliament is promoting equalities, and we're doing an equalities event. And I would like to add that, and Emily, I've learned a lot which I can add to the equalities program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. That's nice to be so positive. Um, there's someone here. Thank you. It was really, really interesting tonight. Um, just talking about relisting, is there also a possibility of kind of relisting, for example, in Parliament Square, you've got kind of very, very complex history going on there of the statues, which I think um, the st new statue of Millicent Fawcett kind of brings to, you know, kind of brings into contrast mm. for, for example, relisting the role of, of Churchill as Home Secretary at the time. Um, it's quite kind of, I think, still... Uh, I, I, I've posted um, images of Ada Wright, for example, having been beaten up by police on Black Friday and received quite a lot of um, abuse back of, of that complex history that Churchill was possibly, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, in charge of the police at that time and ordered them to beat up rather than arrest mm -hmm. and harass mm -hmm. um, because that was better and more off-putting for... Um, so are you asking... Um, I'm asking, can we, can yeah. we redress that yeah. history? Can, can, the, the statue, <laughs> can the statue of Churchill be put in a different light <laughs> as, uh, you know, hero number one, mm. saviour of the, of the nation, which, of course, he was as well, yes. but, he was, but mm. the, there's other history there it's, as well. It's tricky, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> I'm just put that over yeah, to you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it, could, it could become endless if we sort of we recast everything, but I think that's one of the, the interesting aspects of this enriching list I mentioned earlier is that that's there for, for anyone to add further research, more information, a different kind of perspective on something. So there is a tool there for anything that's currently on the list to go in and, and add additional information. But if there are inaccuracies, if there are things that are just plain wrong, or indeed if there's new research, it is, it's a registered landscape and there is um, this sort of change happening there. So potentially, you know, if it is redesigned, some interpretive panels, and it was something interesting that Afua Hirsch raised in a program recently about sort of how to reinterpret Trafalgar Square, thinking about other sort of areas of public realm where increasing new research is available. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's, it's, it's a chance potentially of, yeah, this interpretation can sort of go on endlessly, but I think it's really important that we take the opportunity when we have, have it to think about how we can recast and tell additional stories. So there are lots of different tools. Sometimes we'll do an informal amendment. Sometimes it's, it's up to you to add it. You could always have like a Pokemon Go of historic <laughs> sites. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be a fixed thing, yeah. does it? It could mm. be sound, it could be... Could be visual, could be projection. Yeah. A, fr a friend of mine was involved. Is involved with the Stonehenge. I know it's separate again. I'm going off on one, but um, but she lit or got employees a company to light it for a particular event, um, and it looked absolutely amazing. And, and she wants to project onto the stones, mm. obviously because you can't yes. can't even touch them. Well, you can't no. can touch them. No. But um, you know, other other ways other than statues and hard a hard material mm. is, is possibly a way forward. There's talking statue plaques, I don't know if you've noticed yeah. that they have, you can mm. use your phones yeah. to get yeah. new information. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 yeah, new technologies. Is there anyone else? Yes, there's someone just here. I just wanted to ask the panel, um, why do you think the suffragettes attacked artwork in museums? And why do you think that these museums, such as the National Portrait and the National Gallery, they don't commemorate this on the plaque next to the actual artwork? I want to know what you think about that. Krista, do you have a view on that? The reasons that they give for doing it are 
varied and they, they're, they're sort of twofold. Part of it, it comes about at a point where they're looking for high-profile campaigns. There have been so many arrests that the court cases are getting much less coverage now. And what's really interesting, when you go and look at the newspaper accounts of the attacks on art, they're suddenly getting really big column inches again. So we know more about the motivations for these protests than we do about, for example, the motivation for, for window smashing. Some of the women involved have deliberately singled out particular paintings and the most famous one is Mary Richardson who slashes the Ropey Venus and she partly chooses this because it's a really famous painting it's just been bought for the nation by public subscription so it's um, and the Daily Mirror knows all about it and sort of newspapers have been involved in getting it saved for the nation so it's high profile but she also makes a point and she, she draws an analogy with prostitution and she says I destroyed this beautiful image of a woman but every day in every day in London, thousands of beautiful women are being destroyed by the way that men behave. And this tied in with another campaign the WSPU was running at the time against the sexual double standard and particularly against the way that prostitutes were criminalised and men who used prostitutes weren't. Other pictures they chose, um, Mary Oldham, who slashed Sargent, said that she, who slashed Henry James, said she didn't know who he was, <laughs> but she knew it was a popular, she knew it was a, a, a famous artist. So there's sort of different reasons. Why they're not commemorated, I've never owned a gallery, I'm never likely to own a gallery, but if I did own a gallery, I don't think it's the sort of thing I'd want to put in people's minds as a, a possible <laughs> way repeat. of camping. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know, I can't think of any... I actually was a volunteer researcher for the Women's Hall project at Tower Hamlets Archive, and I think it was completely fascinating to me about these characters coming out of the shadows, and, and you used an expression, forgive me, I can't remember the expression, about bringing them Putting out. them back in the picture, I Putting think them back is, in yeah. the picture, and I just hope this really continues, because I think for a lot of people, it's completely changed their view about Sylvia. They made still think she's wonderful, but she didn't, you know... We know she didn't do it alone, but though we don't, didn't know enough to think about those who were very close to her, that inner circle. Um, two other points. Is it known where, uh, and this might be a bit obscure, but forgive me, uh, Sylvia's secretary, Nellie Cohen, lived in the flat in Grays Inn Road. Is it known where that flat is? Okay, I can come back to you afterwards about that. And secondly, it's a point going forward, and maybe it's for Emily, I'm not sure. Um, if we look into the future uh, about the history of women in architecture, I think it's completely tragic what's happened to Robin Hood Gardens and uh, the Smithsons, which was a, a female successful architect who didn't, in my opinion, get the respect that she should have done, and now... Robin Hood Gardens is in, in, in real trouble, and all this is a lump of it at the uh, Biennale. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about what can be happened to remember her important contribution, which went beyond Robin Hood Gardens and into the world of architecture? Yeah, I, mean, I think that the role of, of women in architecture is obviously extremely important. It's something that has come to light as part of these recent discussions as well. So there's lots of work. The RBA is doing lots of work recognising Ethel and Bessie Charles, the first RBA um, architects there. So there's, I think it's there's this momentum that's coming up this year that's broadening out into all sorts of different <coughs> spectrums of kind of women's engagement in the public realm. So um, we've got some resources on our website that talk about the roles of women in architecture, both 
building types that were, were done exclusively for women or, or by women, and then also women who actually engaged in, in architecture or construction and craft. We relisted Waterloo Bridge to highlight the importance of women in, in the construction of it. And there are some Smithsons buildings on the list. I, know, so, I mean, I, um, I, I'm actually the nearest thing that Alison has to a biographer, so she's one of the women in my book, so I know a great deal about Alison. And um, obviously the Economist building is, is listed mm -hmm. and has just been uh, refurbished and the public space has just been renamed as Smithson Square. So, um, and you can now go and have a, 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 you know, and enjoy it in a new way. Mm -hmm. So, I, and I, I think, um, I mean, we could talk for hours about Robin Hood Gardens, but I do think that Alison's profile um, you know, has become much, much higher. It, just even in the last year, that's certainly my experience. I get so many letters about her and, you know, and um, there, there are a number of listed Smithson buildings, in fact. Yes, and look at the work of, of Lynn Walker and, and, and colleagues. They've done some extraordinary exhibitions at the Architectural Association, just highlighting all that really important history. I think my point was, which obviously you're all on side on, it's not that we, we want to look back in years to come and look back at Robin Hood Gardens as something marvellous and now gone. Um, it was a living space and, and a really Im, Im, innovative, imaginative mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, we've got time for it. You've got one more question, I think. Um, we've talked about the neutralisation of gendered environment, but I wondered um, to what extent the um, suffrage sabotage um, was also evidence of intersectional protest, because I know that a lot of the suffragettes um, were anti-fur, they were vegetarian, I know that a lot of them had lesbian relationships, I know that there were some working class suffragettes as well, so I wondered... To what extent do you think it was also a bit more intersectional than just about gender? And One of the beauties of a campaign like that and why it worked was because it was a single issue campaign. So I think that, that's another way of looking at intersectionality historically, I guess. And I think that's one of the reasons why it falls apart so quickly as well, because you, you see a lot of very, very different perspectives in the movement, you know, women who want the vote because they're working women and they feel that working women need the vote more than other women. You see gay women there, although very rarely openly gay. You do see people who are involved in vegetarianism and lots of um, the sexual double standards is another big campaign, lots of other things. But always consistently say the vote is the key to all other reforms. When we get the vote, we can then go and get these other reforms. And this is actually why so many of the women who remain active go off on so many different trajectories because they have their, their one priority, which is the vote, and then they have their second priorities. That's a, but that is a really interesting way of looking at it because I'd never quite thought of it in those terms. So thanks for that. Well, I think we're out of time. I just want to thank you all for coming and being so attentive. Um, listening is a very hard job and you've done it very, very well. <laughs> and I'd like to thank the panel as well. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.